0: Oh. Welcome to the Infinite Horrors Podcast.
1: I know the word auteur is thrown around a lot these days. This guy is certainly an auteur.
2: And he uses a mini move, which means he's fucking fantastic. <laughs>
1: I'm super jazzed to talk about this movie. I had it in my to-watch list because I forget where I'd heard it mentioned, but it was in my watch list pretty far down. And when you mentioned you wanted to do Anise Men for our next episode, I was very excited because it was a movie I knew nothing about. It seemed really interesting to me. And after watching it, it's easily one of my favorite horror movies, if not movies in general, that I've seen this year. I loved it.
2: Yeah, so... Lately, I've been going back to movie theaters, but particularly a movie theater. We have a very nice independent movie theater where I live, and the previews they show are generally quite interesting. And like, they have some interesting movies, a little bit heavier on like the Western side of that, unfortunately. But you know, what are you gonna do? It's not New York City, and I was spoiled growing up, but you know. With exception of The Outwaters, because I saw the preview for The Outwaters at this theater and went, wow, that looks fucking great. And then watched it, couldn't get through it because it was one of the worst things I've ever watched. It was like, a slog. <laughs> It was so bad. Like the movies that they preview are generally pretty good. Mm-hmm. So I just kind of trust it and go, wow, if that looks good, I'll watch it. So this is one of the ones that I saw previewed watching another movie there. And it looked really beautiful. And it did not disappoint. Honestly, before even getting into it while halfway through the movie i kind of realized that it has a similar energy and style to the cure interesting
1: uh how oh, did, not how
2: the cure cure sorry not. um
1: <laughs> i do love the cure though but yes
2: i was just listening to an album by the cure because oh. i was this immigration is
1: like a top five album for me easily oh really oh my gosh
2: interesting trivia to that about album. you sam
1: what? Sorry, I said,
2: this is such interesting trivia about you because you, that is not something I would peg you as having in your top five.
1: Oh, I've listened to Disintegration front to back like thousands of times.
2: <laughs> I mean, it's a good album. I, oh, it's amazing. I support it. Yeah, yeah, but it's this very, its the dream-like far shots mixed with the sound design being in the forefront.
1: Sure, absolutely.
2: It does remind me of Kiyoshi Kurosawa's work. I, and
1: to your point, it was really hard for me to find this really? movie. It was only, well, you know, I went on Amazon and rented it. That's how I saw it. But mm-hmm. even in LA, which has a ton of independent movie theaters, which show art house films all the time, Anise nice Men was only showing in one theater one time a day. So it was, I couldn't go see it in theaters, unfortunately, which would have been amazing, I bet. If you can, I did. Try, yeah.
2: And it was so good. (laughs) I bet. Like, it was so visually beautiful. I was also the only person in the theater. Wow. Which is, like, brilliant, because then I I could take little notes apps and not bug anyone. Uh Uh-huh. So I didn't feel bad about taking little notes as I noticed things. I didn't want to as I went into the movie, because I was like, I don't want to take my eyes off the screen. But I also have the thought retention of (laughs) a colander. So if I don't put something down in my phone because I want to make note of it, it's not going to stay in my head.
1: (laughs) I hear you. Yeah. I mean, well, that was the one benefit of renting it was that I found myself stopping this movie like every two minutes because something interesting happened that I had to write down my thoughts about. Ah, man. So this movie is written and directed by this British lad called Mark Jenkin. I had never heard of him before. This was my first movie of his. I know Maya, you'd mentioned that you were familiar with this guy before. I wasn't.
2: No, no I, I just weren't. Oh. Oh, okay. Having now watched this and then reading about him have made him one of my favorite people. I I love him.
1: <laughs> I mean, I'm super excited to dive into the rest of his repertoire after this movie.
2: Well, it's like one other movie really that he did. I think he's got some short films. Yeah, he's too. got some shorts. Yeah. But I'm mainly excited to see what he does going forward. Totally. Bait is a very different movie. It's like more dramatic, more dialogue. Yeah. Same approach, same shot design, same camera, Mm -hmm. but very different in terms of also not a horror movie. This was his first horror movie. And I really hope he continues making horror movies. But given his interests, I feel like we're going to see a lot of varied content come out from his line of work.
1: Sure. One of my favorite things about it, I mean, the guys from Cornwall, right? And like, this movie is so, it's hard to describe. its It feels like a folk tale, or it feels so of that culture. Have you ever been to Southwest UK?
2: I have not been to the UK.
1: Oh, oh, well, Wait, that's
2: a lie. I went to Belfast once.
1: Ah, there you but go. But not
2: like Britain.
1: Right, right. It is a beautiful place, but... To this movie's credit, it does capture the kind of eeriness of it. It's a section of the UK that, to me, feels sort of stuck in time, which is interesting because time in this movie is played with in such an interesting way.
2: Yeah, and it does have a time setting, but it also feels timeless. Yes. In the sense that it feels like you could believe it was meant to take place now rather than the 70s when it was organized to take place in the plot?
1: Right. Usually when we start these episodes, I try and give a sort of skimmed rundown of the plot. But the plot in this movie, you got to really dig in to try and grasp what's happening. And there's no like real anchor to set yourself to because for those of you that haven't seen this movie, it's a strange one. It's kind of like you operate in nightmare logic. So nothing really makes that much sense, but it also kind of does too. It's very strange. It's very strange. And I loved it. I loved it. So what should we get into first? I mean, I thought the star of the movie, I'd never seen her in anything else, Mary Woodvine.
2: Oh, she's a a fairly successful actress. She and her father are both in this. She's actually Mark Jenkins' partner.
0: Oh, okay. Very cool.
2: So he wrote the movie essentially with her in mind great and then her father is the preacher man
1: oh wow oh in the movie
2: yeah but they're both british actors on stage and screen Mm -hmm. i'm not really too familiar with any work they've done i've seen her father john in odd roles on tv like i recognized his face Mm -hmm. but that's about it gotcha so the movie itself centers around this main character this nameless woman who is on a fictional cornish island and we learn essentially through everything happening that she's tasked with observing this little sprig of flowers by the coast and taking soil temperature and observations a very loose experiment a very odd experiment Yeah. And and you never
1: really understand why
2: she's doing it. And we don't really know how long she's been there. Right. Because we know that we're currently in April, what, like 73, I think it was.
1: April 73. That's right.
2: Yeah. But, you know, it's in a logbook and it's a new page, but it's not like the first page. So we don't know how long this has been going on and how long she's been observing. But the main theme that I've identified watching this has been repetition, right? We totally. see her do the exact same thing every day, down to a T. from the path she walks, which has a very specific tread through the grass, mm-hmm. to the fact that she drops a stone in the same manner down the old mine shaft every day for no reason, yep. to the way that she stops and looks out in the same place to the same point, to the way that she dresses, to the yep. way that she makes tea, to the time she turns on the generator, Everything is exactly the same. There is a very set routine. I love this. I love this type of setup. And then essentially what happens is we see a slow disintegration of that routine. So something on her walk goes a little bit wrong, but then things keep getting worse and worse. And now there's weird sounds and now there's weird sights and now things are missing or things have been added. They don't make sense. And we kind of get this sense of madness. But importantly, there is no real plot. Right. And this is purposeful.
1: Right. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because I was like, when you're watching this movie, there's all sorts of clues to events happening. Like in the very beginning of the movie, there's a radio in her house that she uses to contact these mysterious voices. You don't really know if anyone is on the other side or if it's all in her head or, you know, the point of the movie, Maya, to your point is that you don't know. You're just trying to tie things together in your head with these very disparate points of logic. And yes. early on in the movie, it's what's really interesting to me is that she's listening to this radio and it's some news report or whatever saying that someone, a man disappeared from the island On May 1st, 1973, but that contradicts her log, which is before that time. And essentially what we're seeing is every day leading up to that day, May 1st, May Day, 1973, Mm -hmm. um, which is just great. I love time distortion in movies. I think the movie medium in particular can play with it really well.
2: And just to give some context about the process by which this is constructed, because I think it is really important for appreciating the way the story plays out and the way that we're meant to understand the story. I have an immense respect for Mark. He shoots on a 16mm Bolex camera, which records for a maximum of 27 seconds. And it's all on film. And he shoots without recording sound. He just shoots video. And then in the editing room, he puts together his film in these disparate little segments based off of what he had in mind, but then builds his sounds additively after the fact with re-recorded audio and like Foley shit and all of that. So it's a very, very intentional combination of things Mm -hmm. to give you a sense of what he's trying to impress upon you. And he's also said, one... He's a silent filmmaker, and I agree. I think for having sound, this is a silent film. Oh Yeah,
1: I mean, there's very, very little by way of actual dialogue. Yeah,
2: now. it's very show not tell, which is why it's super effective. Mm-hmm. And secondarily, he says that he wants you to feel the film before you understand the film.
1: Oh, I love that.
2: I think he succeeds.
1: Totally. I think the greatest thing about this movie is the tone it sets right from the get-go. It's more so, to your point, like a feeling of dread that just curdles all the way up to the end in this feeling of utter madness. And yeah, understanding what's happening isn't really the point, which I love. I mean, I tried very hard to make sense of it all. And I guess I shouldn't have because that's not really the point.
2: But Mark has said that Despite there being no real meaning,
0: mm-hmm. he
2: does want people to come up with theories. So yeah. I'll share mine at the end of this because I just, I have so much to talk about oh, with this I film. I have
1: theories too.
2: <laughs> As we mentioned, he's also Cornish. And every time he has been interviewed, he has said, I've tried to make my films feel Cornish. I don't know what that means, but I think I get it now.
1: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs>
2: So Cornwall, in case anyone doesn't know, is a county in the southwest of the UK Mm -hmm. and it is on the coast. It has a very rich history of mining, mining, fishing and fishing. Yeah. And given the fact that the two themes that are visually very apparent in this movie are mines and the coast and the little docking port for all the fishing boats and supply boats, I would say yeah, that seems pretty Cornish.
1: Absolutely. And also, <laughs> I love that Cornwall still has its own language. It's one, it's like yeah. a, it's an endangered language, but it's similar to Gaelic in Ireland or the Low German that's only spoken in this like German commune in Mexico. They're dying languages that are kind of hanging on by a thread.
2: And Mark was initially thinking of making the movie have dialogue in Cornish, but then he said it doesn't matter. Because that's not the point.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, there's the children at the end are singing like a traditional Cornish folk song. Yes. So you do get a little bit of that. But it, the characters speak in, you know, common English. Gosh, but it is just, I mean, I'm sorry. I just keep repeating myself because I'm reliving this movie in my head. It mm-hmm. is such a gorgeous movie.
2: And it really just gives you the impression of a dream. Yes. Like I f- it feels like a dream. Both because it's not logical and because there's a sense of drifting through this landscape. Also, fucking crazy shit. The shooting location was actually next to a busy farm and a massive tourist location. Wow. And it was apparently like super loud and had a lot of foot traffic. And they managed to create a sense of isolation. Yeah. So well. Oh, yeah. These shots were compounded over multiple seasons, too, because they shot, I think, in early spring or late winter. Mm -hmm. And then he went back and took all of the shots of the wildlife to give it life Mm -hmm. in summer, which is so cool. And just the amount of planning and thought that has gone into this is insane. And there's a in the routine, whenever she kicks on the generator, there's always sharp cuts in the sound and the film. And every time I would get a little jump scare, not because it's scary, just because it's effective sound design. And it's beautiful. I love it.
1: The movie actually, (laughs) it doesn't have much by way of traditional scares. Like I wrote down the first one is nearly 40 minutes in, you know, she thinks someone's outside her place and she gets outside. And I think you'll remember it. The camera like dollies back really fast as this figure in white walks backwards into the dark entrance to the house. Well, that was her. Well, yeah, yeah. But it's, it, oh, that was her, right.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She, right. she has multiple occurrences of meeting and interacting with herself at different times that we've already seen.
1: Yeah. It reminded me a lot of, I don't know if you've ever seen Robert Altman's movie Images. Very similar.
2: I will put it on the list.
1: It is very similar. It's a fantastic movie about this. It's about this author who's played by Susanna York. And she goes to this little isolated cottage in the middle of the English countryside. And she starts to go mad. And similar to this movie, sees her doppelganger in the distance. And then later in the movie, you know, she's at a cliff looking at the version of herself looking at the house. So it's like... A similar weird time loop distortion. It's a great movie. And it reminded me so much of Anise Men. Or rather, Anise Men reminded me so much of Images.
2: Ennis, Maine.
1: Ennis, Maine. Yeah. Ah, right. Sorry. (laughs) You know, sorry.
2: (laughs) I'm not... How dare you. Yeah, I know. So Ennis, Maine means Stone Island. And the folk horror in this is made up. It's not really based on anything in particular. However, there's a big stone... That Ah, we see her pass.
1: The standing stone.
2: The standing stone. And then she has a a painting or an inking of the stone with an underground portion that we can't see. Mm -hmm. Similar to like the Easter Island heads. Right. And we kind of hear snippets on the radio about it being defaced and like broken glass being there and shit. Right. So we get the sense that something about this stone is one connected to the island. Two, connected to its mystic folklore. And three, not correct anymore. Like something's happened to it to cause it to be active. Right. And she is constantly drawn to it, constantly looking at it, whether it be the actual stone or the drawing. And every time something supernatural happens, it's connected to the stone. The stone has some kind of influence, and it is also connected to lichen. So the main way that we see horror in this movie is through lichen so there's a lichen that is growing on the stone that we start seeing pop up in other places like the flowers and that's when things start going downhill and then our protagonist starts noticing that she is growing lichen along a scar on her stomach yeah that while we get a sense of isolation and a sense of madness that makes it impossible for us to fully understand whether or not she is truly alone on this island or there are other people in the form of the characters we see. There is a young girl that lives with her, who stands on top of the small shed with a glass roof every day. And one of the dialogue lines is her saying, don't stand up there, you'll fall. And then there's a shot where she's remembering broken glass and then cuts to her inspecting her own scar. One of my theories is that the daughter does not exist. It is a version of her. Absolutely. Yeah. And she has, in the past, fallen through this glass structure and cut her abdomen. However, when we see the daughter eventually, towards the end of the movie, fall through and cut her abdomen, the cut that she has goes the opposite way. Yeah, I which noticed also that too adds to the, we don't fucking know, because it's a confirmation, but it's also not a confirmation. Right. And it's maddening, and I love it. Yeah, It's so yeah. stupid. I love it.
1: That's something I wanted to mention about the lichen, too, is that the lichen and its growth over the flowers and her body is really the only linear sense of time we get in the movie, right? It's the only- yeah. Because the rest of the movie, as we mentioned before, the things that happen are so disorienting and you don't know really what's an echo of the past, what's something from the future. But the lichen growing is this steady progression that we see over the course of, I think, three days, but that, that itself is up in the air, truly.
2: Also, this is when she starts missing entries in her observation log. Yeah, oof.
1: God, it's so good. I love this movie.
2: (laughs) And, you know, another great quote from Mark is horror suggested in the form, not the content. Love that. Because I completely agree. I love that. I was very impacted by this movie. I don't think it's for everyone. I don't think if you like atmospheric dream-like horror, that is, like, I would call it impressionism. It is impressionism of horror. Like, it's fucking gorgeous. It is Super effective. It's technically skilled. It is everything you would want, but it's not like your classic blood gore slasher screaming type of movie.
1: Yeah, it's more so about the atmosphere and the tone it generates. There was a movie that came out earlier this year that I wasn't the biggest fan of called Skinamarink. Oh yeah. Similarly, the camera, like this movie, was like an older camera, so it looked. Like this movie, looked it's set in the early '70s, and it looks like a movie that that would have been made in the early '70s. Similarly, Skinamarink looks like it was filmed from like someone's you know '90s camera. But Skinamarink, again, I didn't like it very much, and I feel like Ennis Main, I think, accomplished exactly what I think Skinamarink was going for. In a much better way.
2: Mark also considers himself a pretentious director, which I love. And he has a set of rules for how he makes things, Mm -hmm. but also insists that as he grows as an artist, he breaks a lot of these rules. I'll read the rules. All silent landscape dancing grain films must, one, be shot on small gauge film, Hmm. two, be presented in black and white which we've already broken, Mm. three, be shot silently and post-synchronized, four, contain voiceover, five, contain no diegetic music, six, be shot with a shooting ratio of no greater than three to one. Wow. (laughs) Seven, be no longer than 80 minutes, eight, feature a protagonist, nine, be shot utilizing no extraneous grip equipment other than a tripod, 10, be shot utilizing only available or practical lighting. 11, be realized whilst subverting or ignoring genre constraints. 12, be realized with a minimum of fuss. 13, break one of the 13 SLDG 13 film manifesto rules. And then he signed it 25th of December,
1: 2012. That reminds me so much of a bunch of Danish directors, Lars von Trier and Thomas Vinterberg, being the biggest proponents of this, the Dogma 95 films. In order for those films to be part of this movement, they too had to follow this long set of rules. And that's very cool. I love that. And to his point of being a pretentious director and calling himself that, that's awesome, I think. And I love that he owns that. I mean, hold yourself to a standard, I guess. (laughs) You know, that's fucking great. I love the little self-imposed rules to this true style of the art form. So I imagine maybe other people can participate in this movement of his as long as they obey the 13 rules, particularly the rule that one, you got to break one of those rules. So I guess the rule that he broke is the black and white, that would mean.
2: Yeah, and probably a few other things, because I'm not technically trained in the film arts. So I don't know whether or not he's adhering to his other technical. Yeah, symbols. right. I don't
1: know my ratios too well either. So, I couldn't tell you.
2: But yeah, there's a lot going on. Also, it is Cornwall, so they they do have folk tales. Mm-hmm. The two that I would point out here for the sake of the movie is Tommy Knockers and Giants. Mm. Tommy Knockers being the human-like smaller creatures that would point you to tin veins in mines and like other ores. And they would knock. So they would kind of show you where that is. So they were very important to miners. And then as things changed and mining became more more and more dangerous, that kind of evolved to them knocking to warn you when things were unsafe. Oh. And then that tradition because of the fact that Cornwall has a lot of minors, when they ended up immigrating to the U.S., Tommyknockers became like part of U.S. folklore.
1: Yeah, I mean, Stephen King's got his novel, Tommyknockers, which, you know, is on the lower tier of the Stephen King repertoire. But, you know, he did incorporate that, to your point. Pretty interesting. And sorry, what's so what's the other folktale?
2: Before we move on from that, I think there is an essence of Tommyknockers, because as we start seeing... The miners come back on this island and the mines start being used again. They don't speak. and They kind of just go through the same routine. It kind of feels like a time loop. So it feels like it's echoes of people who used to work there. Then they'll break that and somebody will actively be interacting with the things in her house. So are these people like now existing again? Or is she back in the past from when this was happening? It's fucking crazy. But there was the sound of mining that she heard in the ground when she was taking observations of the flowers. And to me, that's reminiscent of Tommy Knockers, because it's the repetitive knocking sound that she right. heard in the earth that drew her to go investigate the mines. And then also she would drop the rocks down the mine shaft and she would do it more as she realized that these miners were coming back
0: mm-hmm.
2: to interact with them. So that to me feels like a little bit of folklore influence. And then there's giants. But giants aren't really specific to any one folklore. Any Celtic and Scandinavian folklore tradition is going to have giants. Yes. The Britons also had a lot of giants in their folklore. And there's nothing like super specific. The Britons mainly had tied them into old kings and made them more grandiose by essentially saying they were giants. Right. But the reason I think that there's a little bit of folklore influence around them here is because the statue makes me think of giants, mm-hmm. just because of its, you know, large size, but also the fact that it does seem to have some latent power, and it would make sense that you would have stone carving of a giant. And like, to that extent, if the people who existed before like Roman invasion, picks. yeah, if they're assigning giants to powerful figures like kings, then that to me would suggest that there might be the smallest hint that this was a statue of a very important figure who would have similar adherences,
1: Uh, right? It reminds me, one of my favorite current horror writers right now, his name is John Langan. He wrote an incredible short story collection called Corpse Mouth and Other Autobiographies. And the title short story, Corpse Mouth, is about a family that goes to Scotland, not the same as Cornwall, obviously, but it is about this giant called Corpse Mouth that in the past was raised by Merlin to fight Arthur's enemies. And it's about its resurrection. So, yeah, to your point, like giants are very ingrained in British folklore.
2: Also, the fact that at one point it disappears. Yes, which suggests that it can walk.
1: It disappears and then like also like shows up right outside her door as well at one point. What a great scene.
2: It's so good. Everything about this is so well conceived. I'm honestly going to be thinking about this forever. I love it so much. I
1: have been thinking about it since I saw it. I mean, I'm really into British folklore. My my family's from that part of the country. And Standing Stones are these like pre-Christian monoliths that are scattered all over the UK. They're really gorgeous. Some have these really intricate woad patterns chiseled into them. That's actually the tourist attraction
2: that's next to the shooting site.
1: Wow, very cool. I didn't know that. Dope. And obviously, you know, Christians went and wiped everything out, so we don't have much. We don't know what these stones were used for. Obviously, it had religious context, but their specific function is unknown. I know Ben Wheatley recently used a standing stone in his movie, his most recent movie, Into the Earth. He's another British director, very good. But there's such a cool interest in these stones because they're so mysterious and we're not quite sure what their purpose was. They're clearly important and they're very important to this movie because it like radiates this energy. And I think is, I'll get to this point later in my theory of what the movie's about, but it's kind of like the focal point. It's this psychic epicenter of this movie that sends ripples throughout, you know, this island. And anyway, I would love to break into your theory. I'm super curious to know if it- Well, I've talked,
2: it's just a ton of small ones, and I've talked about a few of them already. Sure. But then there's also the fact that she always tends to have supernatural interactions when she is falling asleep or when she is asleep. Mm Mm-hmm makes me also think that this could have something to do with sleep paralysis or hag attacks. And then we have the seven old women on her powdered skim milk yeah, that the like, powdered milk can coming in to her real life. So to me, that's like her mind projecting things. But at the same time, everything interacts with this world. And nothing has like a set line. To me, I saw that and I was like, oh, it's, it's hag attack. It's a hag attack because it's seven hags and they're all here. And for anyone who doesn't know, hag attacks are basically the concept of the night hag or the old hag, which was supposed to be like a malevolent supernatural creature that would essentially give you nightmares or sleep paralysis, mm. like visions. And while this does not adhere to my experiences of sleep paralysis and a lot of people's from what I understand, because generally you're kind of just stuck in your own bed and like your reality is mixed. It does kind of adhere to the idea that your reality and your dreamscape are being blurred to the extent that you're experiencing both, Mm -hmm. but she is able to move around. And then we have to get in a little bit to the Govenk or what? Govench? Govench? Govinch I don't remember what it's called.
1: <laughs> it's okay. It's Govenek.
2: Is it okay. Govenek? G o
1: v e n e k. Yeah, I don't know how you pronounce that in Cornish, but that
2: it was on the radio a lot. But because it's been a few days, I've forgotten. But she finds an old scrap wood that just says oven on it, which is a part of the boat's back painting that exists on the supply boat that she interacts with because it is brand new wooden paint when she finds it. Mm-hmm. But at the same time. The supply boat comes to a dock that has a plaque that is dedicated to the lives lost when someone tried to rescue the supply boat Govenick or Go- Govench or whatever it is. Yeah. I'm so sorry, Mark. I have forgotten the names. Back in, what, 1879? Yeah it, it?
1: yeah, it was like the late
2: 1800s. And we, we keep hearing over the radio the sounds of that. And then we see the sailors that died trying to save the supply boat standing outside her door. Are there seven of them? I think so. Yeah. I, the number seven seems to be something that pops up quite a lot. And it's weird because that's also like a very biblical number
0: mm-hmm.
2: for a folk horror. <laughs> but yeah, no, that, that was really interesting. And they do have a church that kind of mixes folk and Christian tradition Yeah, that's shown quite a lot. But it's a church that exists in her m- memory, but she also interacts with it in the present, but it's also only in a ruined castle. <laughs> so none of it makes sense, and it's fantastic. But yeah, there's also like the fact that the supernatural events are always connected to children's laughter. Yes. And the children seem to be... A big part of that. I don't. I think there were more than seven children, though.
1: Yeah, there were. There were more than seven.
2: Yeah. And they seem to be a part of this island. I'm not really sure what I assign to them. I don't really care to because there's nothing that pops out at me. And again, this movie does not have a meaning. It only has an effect.
1: Right. Impressions.
2: But it is fun. It is fun to theorize. I, what, do, what do you think? What do you have oh, going man. on in your head? Well,
1: I mean, start. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. I'll try and make this as clear and concise as I can. I do think, to your point, and I also mentioned earlier, the Standing Stone is the center of all of this. And I think the island is caught in its influence. And I think multiple people have died on this island, including our main character.
2: I do also think I came to the conclusion that she was dead.
1: Yeah. And that everyone involved in this island has either lived on it or died near it. And all these separate instances have been jumbled together to repeat themselves endlessly on this island. It's similar to, there was this movie made recently called Anything for Jackson, where a house gets haunted. And if someone dies in the house, they're doomed to repeat that death over and over and over again.
0: Oh. And it's
1: really cool. And so what I think, I mean, I mean I'm mean, i totally, I could be totally wrong here. It's just my theory. And I, again, to your point, there is no right answer. And I think that was made on purpose, or maybe there is, and he just doesn't really want to share it. But. It's that all these kind of I wouldn't even necessarily call them ghosts, but like echoes of people and incidences like the crashing boat, or the one boatman who was trying to give supplies and died, the guy in the yellow raincoat. Yeah, all these things are kind of cyclically repeating themselves, much to your point earlier about repetition kind of being such an important theme in this movie.
2: Yeah, I mean, but then, you know, even with all that, we get a return to normalcy by the end. Everything right. becomes exactly the same. Even the flowers are back.
1: Even the flowers are back. And the house itself, the house she's living in, is shown to be a ruin, which is really cool. <laughs> I just... Yeah. So so I guess my theory is that the Standing Stone is creating this psychic space where time and place are malleable and incidents that have happened on the island intermingle with others and creates this sort of illogical pattern that we get to witness, which is really cool. (laughs) Anyway, that's my theory.
2: I think that makes sense. I, I also had bits that I got the same impression from. So like, I don't disagree with any of that. I also quickly want to mention a few other things. Sure, because I'm I have all of my chaotic phone notes from the uh, from the viewing. Is it the color red? No, oh, uh, but God. also his interview said that was meaningless. Oh my! And people God, were assigning <laughs> way too much val- value to it, and it's completely just hey, it looks nice. Oh, that
1: son of a bitch! I thought that had yeah, to mean because, something.
2: <laughs> no, because people were like, "This reminds me of these particular movies." Was this a callback? And he was like, "No, it just." It was a red raincoat.
1: Right. Well, <laughs> there's a lot of red. I wrote it all down. It's like the stamen and the flowers and her shoelaces and her pants. I, I think
2: it's just nice composition. Yeah,
1: it, it adds I think to this the is, color palette, you know?
2: I think this is a, an English high school teacher phenomenon where we have all been told by a bunch of <laughs> English teachers that Shakespeare's colors actually mean a lot more then you would assume, and actually the red curtains in Macbeth show that Lady Macbeth meant to do this the entire <laughs> time. Yeah. And it's an oppressive guilt.
1: Well, it's in, what's his name? M. Night Shyamalan. I do know that the color red is really important in the sixth sense. It's supposed to be an indicator of something supernatural about to happen or currently happening. But I love to hear, even though it makes I feel like a adult, I'd love to hear that it meant nothing. That's very cool.
2: Yeah, it's cool. Like this guy is like the chillest fucking dude. I loved listening to interviews with him and stuff. Interviewers would say things like, yeah, I noticed this and it made me think of this. And this was like really profound to me. How did this connect? And he would just be like, I didn't. And that would be his whole response. Or like he would be talking about, like, oh yeah, it was great. Cause like suddenly everybody knew my work and I got to meet a lot of people I really look up to. And then would be like, Oh my God. So you got to see all these people. Are you like super inspired by this one specific person? He'd just be like, no. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's the funniest. I love this. This man is super blunt, like really into the technical aspects of what he does. Cause he does all the sound design and the writing and the shooting. He is fantastic. Like he has coherent ideas of what he wants that he builds additively in a way that creates really beautiful works. And I'm so excited to see what he does. But one of the moments of exposition that we get is our protagonist sitting by her talk radio, communicating with somebody else that we don't know, but it's a woman's voice and or a feminine voice, I should say. Mm -hmm. And she's talking and they're just having a chat. We don't know who it is. They seem like friends. And she's like, Oh, you know, you know, how is it out there? And she's like, Oh, you know, it's fine. This is what I came out to volunteer for. So we know she's a volunteer. Mm -hmm. And then the voice just, are you lonely out there? And she's like, not really. She I think she says, like, I'm not on my own. Right? I don't remember that. I just remember her saying that she doesn't feel lonely. Because like I remember being confused by other people being there at that
1: point. Sorry, it was the I was thinking it was the man with the mustache and the yellow rain
2: jacket. Yeah, so she does say that she's not alone by that point, yes. which is further on in the movie. Right. But my theory now, considering how many times she doubles back to interact with herself, is that was her own voice talking to her. Oh totally, yeah. And then also just to be the English teacher that assigns more value to things than <laughs> should. As somebody who does, you know, geosciences and biology, lichen is really fucking cool. The color of lichen can tell you what the mineral makeup of the rock it's growing on likely is, because it'll adopt different colors. Lichen is also a very cool organism because it is, in fact, like a symbiotic relationship between a fungus and algae. So it's a bunch of algae and a fungus living together, which is really cool and kind of interplays to me a little bit with the idea that this island is not like a, a very sound ecosystem. Or maybe it is. Maybe your interpretation's a little bit different. Again, it doesn't matter and nothing makes sense. <laughs> but like lichen's really fucking cool because it has a lot of uses. It's been used medicinally a lot, but particularly what I thought about when I saw lichen growing on her Abdominal cut is the fact that there was one particular species of lichen that I don't remember because it's been a while since I read about it. That Egyptians would use an embalming, specifically in the abdominal incision they would make to take out all of the internal organs, because they would pack, you know, a ton of drying and preservative materials into right. the abdominal cavity. One of those materials was lichen. And that kind of reminded me of that because it is probably a coincidence. I don't think Mark was going through and being like, I want this to be indicative of Egyptian embalming practices. I don't think he's he ever had that thought. But I do think it's a cool coincidence that lichen used to be used in the abdominal packing in Egyptian embalming. And we see it start growing along her abdominal scar that was like a massive gash in her abdomen. I think that's really cool. I also think that that's how she died as a child, and we're just seeing her grow up and live here for an indefinite amount of time.
1: Oh, you think that fall through the glass pane killed her? Yeah. Ah, very cool.
2: Well, you saw what happened to the quote-unquote daughter character. I don't even know if it's her daughter. She's just kind of like a young girl, but given the fact that she's like a mother figure kind of to this girl yeah again i think it is a projection of the self and this is like her inner child but like you know it's insane just go watch it now that you've listened to us just go watch it and then come back listen to us again see what you agree with yeah i love this
1: this is a movie that warrants multiple views Absolutely. I, and in, a, I think, in
2: a quiet place. <laughs> in a quiet, dark place. With a nice, Not yeah, with like, your rowdy friends yeah. who want to drink beers and have a fun time at a movie. No, no, no. This is quiet contemplation. This is a silent movie. Go watch it.
1: This is a movie that you'd almost expect to be playing in the back corner of some art exhibit. You know <laughs> you know what I mean? It has that feel to it. It's, it's definitely like an art house movie. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. And I'm just going to throw out one more recommendation. The nautical themes of it, it's like scientific bent and it's weirdness. It's very much like the writing of Caitlin Kiernan. They're a phenomenal weird fiction writer and they used to be a paleontologist.
2: Oh my God. Send me books.
1: Let's do an episode. I'd love to.
2: Are you kidding me? I'm a micropaleontologist, Sam.
1: There you go. You
2: can't keep this from me. I'm
1: sorry. <laughs> My, you'd love Caitlin Kiernan. I'm sure I would. They're incredible. And they incorporate so much of their science background into their horror writing.
2: Ah, oh, hell yeah. They're great. There's nothing I love more in this world than science-based horror. I love it. A
1: lot of their short stories take place in houses in isolated coastal settings. This movie reminded me a lot of their work. Caitlin that gave
2: me like physical, like aches. I am, I'm physically yearning to read this. Oh,
1: they're so good. I would recommend getting, there's a compilation of their best, not their best, but they say it's the best of their short stories. I would go from that. It's okay. Yeah.
2: But everyone should keep an eye out for Mark Jenkins. If you like Ennis Main, I would say keep an eye out. Definitely check out his other movie, Bait. Again, it's not going to be the same thing and it's not horror but it, it is very nice. It is a nice movie. It's interesting. And I think just on technical skill and imagination alone deserves your time and energy.
1: Yeah, I know the word auteur is thrown around a lot these days. This guy is certainly an auteur.
2: And he uses a mini Moog, which means he's fucking fantastic.
1: <laughs> oh my gosh. Where do you even buy one of those these days? <laughs>
2: That's it's very like, difficult.
1: I know. I would love to learn how to play that. You
2: have to know a guy. It's easier to get hard drugs than it is to get good synthesizers.
1: <laughs> I would love to play a theremin, too. Ugh, that'd be a fun issue. You inch. can
2: probably build one.
1: Could you? I don't think
2: they take that much. Wow. I'll look into it. I'll do some unhinged engineering planning. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm so glad that you enjoyed this. I think this was one of the more fun things to try to unpack that we've done in a while. I loved this
1: movie. And just to your point, there's so much unsaid that it allows the audience to really work it out in their head afterwards. In a similar way, I just saw Ari Aster's new movie, Bo is Afraid.
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, it's on my list. I want to see it so bad.
1: (laughs) It's a very polarizing movie. I am of the camp that it was fucking amazing. I loved it. And similar to this movie, you know, it is so kind of obscure with its logic and you don't really know what's going on that it allows the audience to really participate with the story so much. And that's what made it so fun for me. Uh, Hell yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, until next time, definitely tell us your theories because we are super invested in the story and what everybody thinks happened. But yeah, I'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Infinite Horrors Magazine is a full-color, ad-free print magazine from the creators of Infinite Worlds. You can get your signed and hand-numbered direct edition copy of Infinite Horrors Number 1 plus Infinite Horrors merch at InfiniteHorrorsMagazine.com. You can also get the newsstand edition at ExaltedFuneral.com. Be sure to check out the Infinite Worlds podcast as well as the Infinite Worlds magazines. Find us on social media at Infinite Horrors Magazine or Infinite Worlds Magazine. Also, feel free to visit InfiniteHorrorsMagazine.com or InfiniteWorldsMagazine.com. And you can follow me online on Instagram at heavy underscore metal underscore fruit.
1: And you can follow me on Instagram at horror HorrorSamW.
2: Thanks for listening.